0: following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. In this Church History Sermon Series, we take a look at people and events that still speak to our time and place. For more information, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Matthew 28 it's page number 835. Uh, you are in week five of our six-week mini-series here through Church History. Up to this point, most of the people that we have looked at have been somewhat random in the sense that uh, we've just chosen, myself and Jordan and Chris, people that we were interested in or situations that we were interested in uh, from the past to speak on. And uh, if you're new, you haven't been here for any of the series so far, what we've tried to do is not just tell the story of the individual, but we've tried to take that story, tie it back into Scripture and then show how that still applies to us today. So hopefully we've done a good job of that. However, today we're going to make a little bit of a change. Today and next Sunday, I'll be finishing out our series over these two weeks here. Um, Still in church history, but rather than being... um, random people or events, so to speak, with the Kestners leaving here on the 25th, we thought it would be helpful to take these final two church history messages and look specifically at some characters in the world of missions uh, from the past that still have a big impact on us today, and you will see just how big here in a moment. However, before we turn to that, uh, something slightly less serious, let me give you a quick update on Teen Camp last week. Chris mentioned it. So the uh, week—not this past week, but the week prior—we had eight of our teens go to uh, teen camp. Uh, I was with them most well. Now I was with them every day, and a few other people were with them a couple other days throughout the time. I realized at that moment that I'm getting old. After a week of that, uh, (laughs) by Friday night I came home and I was exhausted. Um, Saturday I was exhausted. Sunday I was even more exhausted. I don't know why it's two days after the fact that you really feel it, but uh, it was a lot of fun. We had uh, nine sessions through the book of Philippians, very well done, Uh, had a lot of great conversations with the teens. It was our church and Colonial Baptist Church, their teens and ours mixed together for the week, about 50 teens in all between our two groups, and we had a lot of fun. Uh, I thought I'd show you just a few pictures from the week, uh, at least the ones that I was interested in. Uh, Chris made a comment, and I don't know why he said this, because I hadn't talked to him about it, but last Sunday he made a comment at, made, about injuries through the week. And there were some uh, minor injuries through the week. Uh, on Friday of teen camp, there's a SEAL who attends Colonial who put together an obstacle course for the teens. I was planning to do it until I saw it, and then I'm like, because I'm thinking, oh, it's going to be like hop a log and run this way and go around the pole. He built six-foot-tall walls. They had to scale, windows they had to go through. He simulated barbed wire. They had to go up a ladder that was literally this big and that waved. Uh, They had to carry us. I mean, it was like over the top. Um, So by the time the kids were done, they are dead. They were. They were absolutely and totally exhausted because it was no small feat. And about an hour, hour and a half, I'm guessing after it was all done, Aaron Shellhart, Aaron, are you in here? There you are. Aaron Shellhart walks up to me. He goes, "Uh, Mr. Potts, look at my knees. And I don't very often ask people if I can take pictures of their knees, but I did this day. I'm filing a lawsuit. Yes, you are. (laughs) This was like an hour after we were done. He was getting bruises all up his legs. Nathaniel's arms, I should have taken a picture of that, were bruised all up and down. I, thankfully, was manning the ladder. I also got a boo-boo right there. (laughs) It's getting better. Um, It was intense, and kids were, by the time Friday night was done, they they were just done. So that was one set of pictures. One more set of pictures I want to show you. But I kind of have to set this up just a little bit for you so you understand what in the world is going on here. So most of our time was spent on the campus of Colonial Baptist Church, the Alton Centerville Turnpike. If you have never been to their uh, facilities or grounds, whatever, uh, to the left of their main building, they have a big grassy field. And they have a problem with geese. So, and I hate geese. I hate them. I've hated them since I went to college in Wisconsin because they would come and just destroy the campus, and you can't kill them legally uh, because they're protected, and I just think they're vermin, so they, they do this also to their property. They, they walk all over this field in the parking lot and do what you know geese do, so in an attempt to stop this from happening, Colonial purchased these three fake coyotes and they actually look pretty real okay they have them like stationed out on the property in different places and as you drive in for the first time you might see them and think oh you know there's a dog there's something else but when you get up you see it's plastic and fur and it's fake so uh, all week long myself uh, Nick Skurdy, Nathaniel and uh, Isaac Tomberlin who I don't think is here today we're driving in and we're looking at these things and every time we see them we just are getting more and more tickled by them being out there they just look funny so we decide, you know what, what's a youth camp without a prank, right? I mean, any good youth group is going to pull a prank at some point. And so we kept looking at these coyotes. We thought, you know what the problem with these coyotes are? They're naked. <laughs> these coyotes need clothes. So early Friday morning, we left early, we got there, and we decided to give the coyotes some clothes. So here is Nick Skurdy <laughs> with what we called Salmon Pants Coyote. For those of you old, old-timers here at Cornerstone, you may remember uh, Frank's Salmon Shorts. They weren't pink, they were Salmon. Those are those. Uh, Next is Isaac and his, we called it, Thank You, Coyote, because there is a sign, don't ask how we did this, a sign attached to his tail that says, Thank You, Colonial Love Cornerstone. And the last one is my son's hipster coyote. (laughs) So we dressed the coyotes, and then we went and hid in a building for like 45 minutes, waiting for people to show up and get there. And finally, people started arriving, and We had no lack of entertainment watching them pull up and get out and take pictures and selfies with the coyotes (laughs) and uh, score one for Cornerstone. All right, that's all we're doing with that one. You're here in Matthew 28. We had a good time that week, but let's turn now to the sermon. We're in Matthew 28. We're going to read two very well-known verses, verses 19 to 20, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Matthew writes, these are Jesus' words to the disciples. Go, therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you uh, again that we can come together this morning to first and foremost be challenged by your word and encouraged to go out and, and live in obedience to it. You have given us commands. You have set forth your plan for how it is that you plan to advance your kingdom around the world so that one day there will be people from every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation gathered around your throne. You have made that very clear. And now it's on us to respond. It's on us to obey. It's on us to go and tell. And so I pray that we will be challenged to do that this morning. I also thank you for the examples that you have left for us of others who have been faithful, who have gone out and done this before us and have shown us what it costs and what its blessings are and what it means for us as believers to not just shirk our responsibilities, but to embrace them as who we truly are. And so I pray that we will be encouraged by those examples. May you be exalted this morning, Jesus, in everything we do. May we not exalt any man, but rather give thanks to you for how you work in people's lives, including our own. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things that made me chuckle this past week at teen camp was one of my uh, was my son's uh, seemingly continued amazement at all of the connections that existed between various people that were involved that week. The guy who was the speaker for the week was Pastor Mike Saunders from Emanuel Baptist Church up in Richmond. Uh, Mike and I went to college together. He was a freshman my senior year. He was on my hall. I was his RA. He has lots of terrible stories about me, as do many others, but that's okay. Uh, not only was he friends with me, but he was very good friends with Jordan and with Rob Hall, for those of you who remember Rob. And so he knows a bunch of other people here as well, and a bunch of people at Colonial also. That we had all these connections from the past was a little weird for Nathaniel to think about. And I kind of understand that because I've experienced that as well. Sometimes you find out that people are connected and it makes you feel, I don't know, surprised or a little strange that they know each other. Other times you see people that have connections and you think that's pretty cool. For example... I'll never forget the first time that I read Clement of Alexandria's first letter to the church in Corinth. Now, if you don't know who Clement is, which you probably don't, Clement is what we would refer to as one of the early church fathers. He's he's not a biblical author, so you can't turn to the book of Clement in your Bible. You won't find it in there. But he's what we would call an early church father, which is just a way of referring to someone who was a leader in the early Christian movement. When I say early, we're talking first century, late first century, or second century. These are within a hundred years or less of the apostles. And many of these people, well, maybe I should just say some, some of these people wrote letters, uh, sermons, little booklets, you could call them even, that have survived to this day, and they give us a lot of insight into what the early church was like during that time. And, and I'll never forget reading uh, Clement's letter for the first time, because in it, he talks about both Peter and Paul, not Mary, but just Peter and Paul, as if he knew them. Some of you are too young to get that. Um, as if he, he actually knew them. And the reason he talked about them like that most likely is because he, he may have known them. Or if he didn't know them, he knew someone who did. And to think about that, that you're reading a letter of a guy who either knew the Apostle Peter or, or he knew someone who did know them, that's kind of, I don't know kind of cool to me, but I'm a dork. Uh, Even the fact that he's writing to the church in Corinth, as he writes the letter, he talks about their former problems that the apostle Paul had dealt with. He reminds them, he knows about their story and their history, and now he's writing about some new things that have come up. So it's just just kind of neat. Well, I ran into another one of those cool historical connections not too long ago. Over the past year, year and a half or so, I've been uh, mentioning this book named uh, Wise Counsel, which is one of the most interesting books I've ever read because it's part a collection of letters between John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, and a a young pastor named John Ryland Jr. So it's part that, it's part biography of both of those two men because they're both very important in their own ways, and it's also part history of the church, the British church in the early to mid, uh, well, just throughout the 1700s. So it's kind of a, a, a weird setup, but it's really cool. Well, I was reading in this about a year ago, and there uh, was this note that on October 5th, 1783, John Ryland Jr. made a, 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 an entry in his journal that he, along with three deacons from his church, took a young man down to the River Neen uh, near the Doddridge Meeting House somewhere there in, in central England to baptize him. And the note that he put in his journal was this, quote, this day baptized a poor journeyman shoemaker, end of quote. That's it. That's all he wrote about the incident, all he wrote about the individual. He had no idea that within 10 years of having made that one sentence entry in his journal, that that young man that he had baptized would so radically change, not just the the British church, the English-speaking church there in, in, in England, but but actually the church at large for centuries to come. uh, In fact, we are going to be personally and directly affected by it here in just a few short weeks. You see, the young man, that poor journeyman shoemaker that Ryland baptized that day, was none other than William Carey, otherwise known as the father of modern missions. Now, like most people that God seems to use greatly, Carey is absolutely a nobody. And I mean that with no disrespect to him. He's just a nobody. Uh, he was born to Edmund and Elizabeth Carey on August 17th, 1761 in the small English village of Pollersbury. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly in Central England. His parents were weavers by trade. He grew up in poverty and had basically no formal education. At the age of 16, he is apprenticed to a shoemaker in the nearby village of Hackleton where, as God's providence would have it, he spends the next however many years, sitting side by side with two other believers. One was named Clark Nichols. That was the, the master shoemaker who was teaching him the trade. And the other was a fellow apprentice named John War. And at some time during this period of his life, when he's just a, an apprentice shoemaker, that he experiences conversion, that he accepts Christ as his savior. And what Kerry lacked in wealth and in opportunity and education He more than made up for in faithfulness and in plotting hard work. While he was apprenticed to Nichols, as he's sitting there day after day hunched over, you know, a bench making shoes, he teaches himself Greek so that he can read the New Testament for himself in the original language. Um, Nichols dies in 1779, and so Carry still needed, felt he needed more training, so he went to work for another shoemaker named Thomas Old. Old uh, has a sister-in-law who uh, Carry ends up marrying in 1781. But, but unfortunately, Old himself dies soon after Carry begins to work for him, and so Carry takes over the business, kind of becomes a, a self-employed shoemaker on his own there, trying to make a living for his family and his, his children that are beginning to come. But in the midst of all that, he teaches himself Hebrew, Italian, Dutch, and French, all while working on his shoes. So he's a multitasker to say the least. Um, over those next couple of years after he, he takes over the business, he begins to preach. Some of the local churches that are there around the area. And don't, you know, as we hear that today, it's hard for us to picture what it would be like in the mid 1700s, but these would be very small, little country kind of churches that would be around the area. So he's going into these churches, he's preaching. This is where he meets John Ryland Jr. during this time. He gets baptized. And after being baptized by Ryland, uh, he commits himself to become a Baptist. He, He joins the Baptist denomination. And by 1785, he had gained so much learning, just at his own hand, just teaching himself while he was working and just being a faithful plotter that he was. He gets uh, appointed the schoolmaster for the town of Moulton and the pastor of the local Baptist church there, there. And all during this time, while he's teaching and now pastoring, guess what he keeps doing? Studying, reading, learning, quietly. Nobody knows him, nobody sees him all on his own, simply out of faithfulness. And it was sometime during this period that Kerry read a book that would forever change his life, and not just his life, but actually every one of our lives as well. Uh, it was a book um, about a guy named David Brainerd that Jonathan Edwards Had written called The Account of the Life of the Late Reverend David Brainerd. Now, even though I'm not here to talk with you about who David Brainerd is, I do have to give you just a snippet of his life so that you understand why it impacted Carrie's like it did. Um, Otherwise you wouldn't understand what comes next. But Brainerd was born in Connecticut in 1718. Uh, years later after being expelled from Yale University because he had the audacity to question the spirituality of some of its professors and administrators he decides to become a missionary to the native american indians out on the frontier of america which at that moment is about albany new york he spends most of his time working up and down basically the new york what we would think of today is the new york massachusetts line he he preaches to numerous indian tribes does a little bit of translation work as well, into some of their languages. But unfortunately, being out on the frontier, coupled with some problems he had had growing up as a youth, he gets sick, probably had tuberculosis. They didn't call it that at the time, but his symptoms seemed to indicate it. And on October 9, 1747, at the age of 29, David Brainerd dies in the home of Jonathan Edwards. In fact, Edwards, his own da- daughter, tries to nurse him back to health and dies in the process as well, Con- contracts whatever he had, and they both die. And so, you know, in terms of missionary success, and you're going to see me use the word success in various ways uh, over the course of the next few minutes, but in terms of missionary success, Brainerd doesn't seem to have a lot. In his few short years of ministry, he only sees like one or two converts to Christianity, he spends most of his time sick, a lot of his time indoors trying to write and translate. But there's not a lot to show when he's all said and done. And had he not befriended Jonathan Edwards, there's a very real possibility that none of us would have ever heard of David Brainerd, and none of us would have ever cared. But he did befriend David Brainerd or uh, Jonathan Edwards, and Edwards wrote this biography of his life, and William Carey read it. And when Carey read that bi- biography, he was moved. By the need for Christians to go out and to share the gospel actively, purposefully, with those who had never heard it before, and to try to to spread the kingdom of God around the world, no matter the cost, no matter the results. And so, at a minister's meeting, remember Carey now, he's a small, he's a pastor of a small church there in in central England. At a minister's meeting in 1786, Carey raised a question. That he had probably no idea when he raised it would, would reverberate the way it did, but he raised the question of whether or not it was the duty of all Christians everywhere to spread the gospel throughout the world. You're like, so what? <laughs> That's like the most obvious question ever, right? I mean, but but at the moment it wasn't so obvious. You see. He had been reading and studying the scriptures on this very question, and he had come to a conclusion about the passage I read to you here at the beginning of our time together. Here in Matthew 19, as I already mentioned, Jesus is is on the verge of ascending into heaven, but before he leaves, he gives a command to the 11 disciples who are standing there. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this is a very familiar passage to many of us, and like so many other passages we have talked about and looked at over the years, because it's so familiar to us, we have this tendency to almost ignore it when we hear it. We don't even really think about it because it's so commonplace and familiar. We know this as the what? Wow, see, you guys knew it pretty well, didn't you? We know it as the Great Commission. But in Cary's day, this command wasn't so cut and dry and so obvious to everyone, and the commission that it seems to give wasn't seen as being so great. You see, many of the people that Cary knew and interacted with at that time believed that this command applied only, only to the 11 disciples. That was it. No one after them, no one except them, Certainly not anyone in 18th century England. Now, now, you may be confused as to why people would think this at this time there in the mid-1700s, and why I could probably spend the rest of our time together just trying to explain that to you. I won't. I'll simply summarize it by saying that they did so because they had a wrong view of both the doctrine of and the application of election. They believed that because God had chosen those who would be saved— that there was no need for them or for anyone else for that matter to do anything to help God call the elect to himself, that they could just all sit back and twiddle their thumbs and God would do what he wanted to do. In fact, when Carey raised this question at that meeting there in 1786 about whether or not it was the duty of all Christians everywhere to, to spread the gospel to the nations, John Ryland Jr.'s father, John Ryland Sr., is reported to have stood up in the meeting and said to Carrie, and I quote, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Woo, yeah. Um, Now, you again hear this, and you're like, really, someone said that out loud? Like, I mean, he might have thought it, but why would he say it out loud? Uh, That guy must be an oddball. Not at the time he wasn't. At the time, that sentiment that he communicated when he stood up and rebuked Kerry was, was the sentiment. That was the normal. That Kerry had asked the question he asked in this uh, uh, minister's meeting made him the oddball. The pastors, the churches, the believers of that day had a wrong view of the application of the doctrine of election that excused them from doing anything to spread the gospel to anyone. But when Carey read this verse, these verses, and many others, this was just the one that he focused on for his time and for that question, when Carey read these verses, he didn't read it as being just for the 11 disciples and no one else. He, like Brainerd before him, and like his good friend John Ryland Jr., father and son did not agree on this point, they all saw it as being the responsibility of all believers to spread the gospel. He viewed the doctrine of election not as as preventing evangelism, but as encouraging it, as assuring that it would have success and bear fruit. And so, over the next five years, guess what Kerry did? He plotted. He worked hard. He studied. He read. He thought. He wrote. He preached. He dreamed. he, He communicated. He convinced. In 1789, he published this groundbreaking missionary manifesto entitled An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. They had long titles back then. It was was actually a short book. It had five parts, and I wouldn't normally tell you the parts of a book because it would normally not matter, but I want you to listen to the five parts he included in this book and think about why he did this and how groundbreaking this was for the time. The first part of the book was a theological justification for missionary activity. Uh, he, He argued that this command here, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, was not just a command to, uh, uh, from Jesus to the disciples to make uh, more disciples of the world, but it, would, it remained true for all believers throughout time. What he wanted to do was to show people that, that this desire, this, this responsibility, isn't just based in some emotional reaction of carry to what he saw around him, that it's actually rooted in scripture, that it has a basis and a foundation that matters and is authoritative. And so he gives the whole first part of his book to making that case. The second part, outlined a history of missionary activity, beginning with the early church, going all the way through David Brainerd, John Wesley, some of these guys who were starting to do some of this work again. What he was trying to show people was that, hey, look, they're not the oddballs, we are. The whole reason we're here today, the whole reason the church has advanced the way it has over the last 1,700 years at his point is because people have gone out and done this. They've gone out and spread the gospel. We're the oddballs, not, not them. Part three was made up of 26 pages of tables listing area, population, and religions, religious statistics for every country in the world. And Carrie had done all of this while he was teaching and pastoring, just compiling information. Not very sexy, not very cool, just sitting there reading and studying and writing. 26 pages. No one had ever done this before. He's not just saying we should go out and just, you know, hope it works out. He actually had research prepared. He knew the people. He knew the the, the countries. He knew the languages. He knew their religious makeup as best he could at the time. They didn't have an internet, so he's got to rely on what he can get. 26 pages of tables so that they could actually have fact-based thinking about what they were about to do. The fourth part answered objections to sending missionaries, such as difficulty in learning the language or, or... Risk of life. And the interesting part is he didn't deny or attempt to just ignore the objections. Yes, I might die. That's true. That is a real danger to missions. We might die. My family might die. My wife might die. My children might die. But then he gave answers to them as to why, though, it was still worth going even despite the objections. So objections and answers to them and then the fifth and final part of his book called for the formation by the Baptist denomination of which he was a part of a missionary society, and he described the practical means by which it could be supported. supported. In other words, he wasn't just um, going to call out the problem. He actually gives them a game plan for a solution. Here's what we should do. Step one. Step two. Step three. We need to ask people for this. We need to put this together. We need, I mean, he laid it out, a whole plan for what we would think of today as a mission board or a mission agency. This is what Kerry worked on. His book outlined his basis for missions, which was Christian obligation, wise use of resources, accurate information. Tying those three things together like Carey did had never been done before. It was groundbreaking in, in Kerry's day. Nobody else was talking like this. And if we had to summarize Kerry's message to the churches of his day, we would do so from, I think, his most famous quote because he exemplified both his heart and his message. Attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. Most famous quote. Now, in our day and age, that could potentially, I say this only because I'm sensitive to our own times, be misconstrued as some kind of like prosperity gospel, name it, claim it sort of thing. Believe me, that was as far away from Carrie's mind as you could ever possibly be. Um, He simply believed that the gospel of Jesus Christ was powerful enough that if he went out and others went out and spread it, that God would work, that God would save souls, and that this mission was so valuable and so worthy and so right that he and others should be willing to risk anything and everything to be a part of it. That is what he meant by that statement. Regardless of what anyone today might try to make out of it, and over those five years of writing and preaching and talking and thinking and convincing, he moved enough people that uh, to, enough people to form what we would think of today as I said the very first modern mission agency. In 1791, a society was formed that was called the Particular Baptist Society for Propagating the Gospel Among the Heathen, or gath for short. Acronyms, again, were not really their strong point back in 1791. I was like, who named these things? Uh, the society uh, decided to send Kerry, his family, and another family with them uh, to Calcutta, India to begin preaching the gospel there. And, you know, it's interesting, once they arrived, uh, obviously they had to get housing. They, they found work. <laughs> you think, well, what kind of work would would William Carey do? He's obviously brilliant. He could teach himself. uh, I think in the end, he taught himself 11 languages, but we'll get to that in a moment. Um, What kind of work would he do? You know what he did? He managed an indigo factory. That's it. Six years, he managed an indigo factory to support himself, his family, and even the other family too. To use modern terminology, he was a tent maker. That's what we call missionaries today who go into other countries and get jobs and just work on their own to support themselves. Uh, during those six years, he wasn't just sitting there doing nothing. He's, he's learning the language. He didn't know the language when he got there. So he spent years learning Bengali uh, so he could communicate with people in their native tongue. Uh, he managed that plant, and during those six years, while he's learning, he's able to translate the entire New Testament into Bengali. Uh, meanwhile, more missionaries are showing up that are being sent by the society he formed. You know, it's interesting, these early missionaries, they're not superheroes. They're teachers and printers and just regular folks. And whatever skills they brought with them when they showed up, guess what? They put them to use in some way, shape, or form there in the in the mission and, and used them well. Uh, all they had to do was be able to try to reach people with the gospel. Now, I would love to tell you, love to tell you that, you know, by the uh, the end of these six years, that they began seeing hundreds or even thousands uh, showing up, uh, learning about the gospel and and accepting Christ as Savior, but that would be totally untrue. In fact, they didn't see their very first convert until the year 1800. That is seven years after they arrived. Seven years they worked and plotted and labored one convert. But those seven years weren't a waste. Two months after seeing their first convert, he was able to publish that New Testament into Bengali. And in doing so, he pretty much established the Bengali language to this day. He and his printer friend hand-carved the very first typesets for the Bengali language. <laughs> like they, they established what it would look like and how it would be to today. Over the next 28 years of mission work in India, he and his helpers translated the entire Bible into all of India's major languages, Bengali, Uriah, Marathi, Hindi, Asamis, I don't know how to pronounce that, in Sanskrit, and they also translated parts of the scriptures into 209 other languages and dialects. He also sought uh, social reform in India. He 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 fought to end and eventually won uh, to end the practice of infanticide. That's abortion after birth. We we are more civilized in our country and we do it before birth. That's not funny. I'm just making the point. It was just as much murder then. As it is now, and he fought against that and eventually won. He fought against the practice of, uh, of uh, it's called Sati or Seti, of widow burning, of assisted suicide, just societal wrongs, just evils that were in the land that he and his co workers tried to bring it to an end as best they could. Uh, they founded a school, a divinity school, where uh, they could offer theological education to, to locals to train them to be able to go out and reach their own people. That college, Sarampore College, still. Uh, active to this day. By the time he died on June 9, 1834, he had spent 41 years in India without a single furlough. He just moved there. He just moved and decided to stay, live, and die there. And at the time of his death, he and everyone that was there working with him could count about 700 converts total. Now, you might look and go, "That's, that's not bad. That's 700 converts in the nation of India, which, you know, even at that time was millions upon millions upon millions. They had barely, barely even begun to scratch the surface, but they had laid an impressive foundation of Bible translations, education, social reform, and in the decades after his death, thousands upon thousands of Indians accepted the gospel as a result of what he started. Not only that, but the society he formed sent missionaries not just to India, but around the world, and countless others, to this day, countless others have read of of William Carey's life and, and what he did, and were inspired to go themselves, be willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of reaching the lost with the gospel. That, folks, is why he's called the father of modern missions. It's not that there weren't other people who were doing the same thing that he did before him, David Brainerd being a good example, he went and did the same thing. It's just that nobody else had the impact that Kerry had. You know, God used him in in a very unique way. And and ask yourself the question, why? It's not because Kerry was flashy. He would not have been the first person you picked for the dodgeball team. I'm just, you know, he'd be like the last one picked. He had no education, no pedigree, no background, nothing. It's not because he's some larger-than-life figure. He was a kid asking questions. That was all he was. And it's not because he's a superhero of the Christian life. If I had to guess, not that I can speak for God, but if I had to guess why God used him, I would say because he was faithful. He was willing to just sit down and, and plod and do hard work in the background with nobody seeing him. I often told my kids that, uh, you know, Jesus talks about who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the person who's the least of all, right? I think, I I don't know if when you get there, it's like a leaderboard and there's gonna be a name at the top, but I'm pretty sure that whoever that is, if that was that way, it'd be someone you and I have never heard of. It wouldn't be William Carey. It wouldn't be Apostle Paul. It won't be any of us who are known. It's gonna be someone that nobody, it's gonna be like a grandma somewhere that nobody's ever heard of. She died in obscurity, Greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's going to be something like that. He was faithful. He was humble. He was willing to just put his nose to the grindstone and work and plod along with seemingly no success outward. He was willing to suffer, and he did suffer. I haven't really focused a lot on that, but um, his first wife suffered a mental breakdown there in India after they arrived after one of their children died, and she effectively remained crazy. She lost her mind After that, until the day she died, he he had lost two wives in the process, two or three kids. He himself was sick many times. Once, a terrible fire in the printing press. He had been working on all this stuff and was all lost. He lost years of work. Never stopped him. None of that. Never stopped him. Through it all, he just kept his eyes on Jesus, and that sustained him through everything, no matter what. Now, I want to apply Carrie's life and ministry to us in three different ways, and then we'll be done. The first one is going to take us back a couple of weeks. If you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, you might be just a little lost for a moment. I'm sorry. But for those of you who were, you'll you'll know where I'm going here. First, whereas Charles Finney exemplified someone using the wrong means for the wrong reasons, William Carey exemplifies someone who used the right means for the right reason. Now, you say, what do you mean by means? What I'm talking about is actions, decisions, choices, you know. Practical things, what do you do? What are you gonna go do? Those are your means. How are you going to get there? Those are your means. and And, and if you remember about Finney, Finney did not believe that that man was incapable of coming to God on his own. Finney believed that everyone he met had some inner secret desire to be made right with God, and so because he believed that, he had no issue standing up and using manipulation or guilt or whatever he needed to do to try to get you to respond to what he was preaching, and he did all kinds of things, many of which have affected the church to this day, and were wrong. He used wrong means for wrong reasons, Carry, on the other hand, is almost like the anti-Phine. If you could think of it in such a way, he understood who God was and he understood who man was. He knew how the gospel worked and he knew that only God could make the gospel work. But unlike John Ryland, uh, senior, the guy who told him to sit down, God will convert the heathen without your help or mine. Carry believed what Paul writes here in Romans chapter 10. How then will they, the unbelievers, call on Him, Christ, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? He he, he would have agreed with Ryland Sr. that, that God doesn't need our help, but he would disagree with him because he understood that God had chosen to use us. God himself had chosen to work through the means of us, us, regular people, just regular people proclaiming a message. That's it. God Himself chose to work through means. And if God Himself would choose to work through means, then why shouldn't Carrie? Why shouldn't He go out and preach? Why shouldn't He go out and tell people? Why shouldn't He come up with plans to, to make this happen? If God was going to do it, why couldn't He? And so Carrie here goes out and employs right means for the right reasons. Secondly, Carrie affects us today here at Cornerstone in a very practical and obvious way, and customers are sitting right there. Call you out, sorry, but you know, I already told you Cary inspired many, many people to go into missions work, to go out, be willing to to travel to foreign lands and risk everything for the sake of spreading the gospel. And Jared and Sharon are examples of people who in our own midst have been affected by William Carey. I'm not saying personally directly, maybe they have, but the fact that they're going is a direct outworking of what Carry did. We're seeing it play out in our own church right now in our own life, as a, as a church body right now, what William Carey started back in 1791. They're going to do many of the same things he did. They're going to go and they're going to have to learn language and it's going to be hard work and they're going to be sitting there spending years working amongst the people who have never heard the gospel. They're not going to, to France. They're not going to Texas. They're, not going to, they're going to Indonesia, to a set of islands where there are people who have never even heard the name of Jesus. Many of them, most of them, was it ninety-nine point like nine percent, Muslim. They're going to experience exactly what Carrie experienced, and as we send them out in a few weeks, I, I hope we do so with right expectations. We should expect them to be faithful. We should expect them to be willing to plod and do hard work, and we should not be expecting instant results. And I put it again in quotes because. Too often we as Americans, we as American Christians, think results means numbers. Sometimes results just means quiet nothing. <laughs> you looked at Carey at most of the points of his life, you would have seen nothing. You would have seen a man hunched over a bench working on shoes, on indigo, on whatever. You would see nothing. <laughs> Was God at work? Yes. You never judge people by a snapshot. Don't judge them by a slice of their life. You can't judge until it's done. You can sit back after Carrie dies and you can look at what God did and you're like, whoa, that's amazing. You'd have stepped into any slice, any moment, and you'd be like, what are you doing? Reading a book while you're We expect them to be faithful and to plod and to work hard, and we will expect God to use them in whatever ways He sees fit. And finally, Carrie should affect all of us as we should be seeing it as our mission to spread the gospel to those who are around us. See, there's often a wrong distinction in many of our hearts when we hear the word missionary. We tend to think of missionary and missions as like job descriptions. You know, hey, you're a mechanic. Okay, so you work on cars. That's what you do. I don't do that. I'm not a mechanic. So you do what you do, and I'll do what I do, and we both do our parts, and we're good. I don't need to bother myself with your work. And we hear someone's a missionary, think, oh, they're a missionary, so missions is their work. So that's you know up to them. They need to go out spreading the gospel. I need to be focused on what I'm doing. I can help them with some money, but you know that's not my job. And I'm just reminding you and challenging you that that kind of thinking, that kind of distinction, is wrong. You got it? It's wrong because evangelism, missions, is not the job of a missionary. What distinguishes them from us is that they're uprooting their lives. They are sacrificing quite a bit to go to a foreign country to do something that's not in their hometown. But once they get there, guess what their job is? It's your job. It's my job. Because we are all ministers of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as whatever it is we happen to do. My responsibility to proclaim the gospel to the people God puts around me is no different than Jared and Sharon's. Your responsibility, whether you're in the Navy, or in a private workplace, you're retired, you're a stay-at-home mom, you're a student, you're a kid, whatever the case may be, your job is absolutely no different than Jared and Sharon's. The same responsibility that Kerry was trying to communicate to the people of his day is right and is true of us today, no matter what we do. And this is why it's built into our very purpose statement that, all of us, we all are supposed to be proclaiming Christ, who he is and what he did for us by dying on the cross for our sins so that we can present everyone perfect in Jesus. And to this end, we, like the Apostle Paul and like Carrie, should toil. We should work with all of the energy that God gives us to this end. Carrie was a living, breathing example of Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29 and we should follow his example. We should work with all the energy that God gives us to proclaim Christ to everyone so that we can present everyone perfect in Christ Jesus. We should attempt great things for God, and we should definitely expect great things from God. Be by your heads. Father, I'm encouraged that we look back in history, we see your promises and your truths played out in in color, in living, breathing examples. You said, or Paul said, you through the Spirit, and Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that you use the weak, you use the foolish, you don't use the strong, you don't use the noble, you don't use the wise of this world. You use people who are nothing, so that you can get all the glory, so that you can be everything. And we see an example of that with Carrie. We're not here to, to praise him or to magnify his name. He, he himself would, would shrink back from that if he had any sense that that was what was happening. He recognized that you were worthy, that your name was worthy, that your gospel was worthy to sacrifice everything for And as such, he's just a good example for us to look at and see that we too need to be living our lives in this way. And so I pray, Lord, for us as a church and for all the churches across the entire world that we will see ourselves as the missionaries that we truly are. Yes, some, like the Kestners are going to go. And that's good and right and needs to happen even more. But for those of us who stay behind, the job is no different. We still need to be proclaiming the gospel. We still need to be seeing it as our duty to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth and to the ends of our street. And so I pray that you will impress that on our heart, that that command there in Matthew 28 was not just for the 11 disciples. I don't think anyone here believes that. But that was for us. It was our commission, just as much as it was theirs. Help us then to go out and live it. Help us not to look down on faithfulness plotting, and hard work. As Americans, I think we're so culturally taught to expect quick results and instant success, and we want things to be big and flashy and and cool, but that's just not how you seem to work most of the time. You seem to work with the nobodies in obscurity over long periods of time with seemingly no visible outward success, and then somehow through it all, (laughs) the mustard seed becomes a tree, and we don't even know how it happened. You did that in Carrie's life. May you do that in the Kessner's lives. May you do that in our lives and in our church, we ask in Jesus' name.